And hey guys, we're back again uh, with another 5 to 7. And um, I have with me uh, Dr. Wahida Lilovic. And she is a professor at... Um, well, how about I How about I let her introduce herself? Go ahead, Wahida, why don't you do your thing? Hi, Ari. Thank you for having me. Um, so yes, my name is Dr. Wahida Lilovic. Most people don't realize I'm a doctor, so it gets dropped a lot. Um, and I am a professor at a small liberal arts college um, called the College of New Jersey. For reference, it's up the road from Princeton. Uh, so um, I guess my area of expertise, professionally anyway, is human resources management. I'm a Mac McMaster grad, um, but with a diversity, equity, and inclusion lens, among among other things. Fantastic. Great. So... Um, we've had a little discussion before about the five to seven. So I'm going to ask you uh, between five and seven questions. And, you know, the only thing I will ask of you is to be as honest and forthcoming as possible. If you need to swear, swear away. Um, and uh, just, you know, make sure whatever comes out of you is 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 honest, I guess, is kind of the best way to, to, to put right. it. So um, first question. 30 seconds of who you are and what you're most proud of. All right. Um, that's always an interesting question because I ask my students that question and they have a hard time answering sometimes. So it, it's not always the easiest question. Um, and I kind of want to go down the route of I'm, you know, I like to travel and I like to explore and all of that, but everybody says the same thing. So um, who am I? <laughs> Ari, you know who I am to a degree. I am an old high school buddy of yours. Um, but I guess the last 30 years or so, taken some interesting paths. Um, education was very strongly instilled in me. So I, I, I studied a lot. Um, I, I am interested in the human condition and how we can maximize everybody's contribution. Um, I am a petite female. If you want a physical description of me, often ambiguous in how I look, so I get mistaken a lot. Um, especially, I, I don't look like, like a typical professional, so I get mistaken a lot that way. Um, I, I am someone who is inquisitive. Um, I posted something really quick on my social media today about the Queen Street Hill. And that's it. Only if you're in Hamilton, you'll understand what that is. But I lived in an apartment building that looked up that hill. And even as a child on my tippy toes, I would look up that hill and wonder what was there and thought, gosh, wouldn't it be really neat to get up there? And that's kind of how I approach things. You know, is there something I can do? What can I do? Look at this interesting thing here, there. What would happen if I actually tried to get there and go there? Um, usually with a lot of bumps along the way. Um, and, you know, I guess I don't know what else to say. I, I, I look at life through a very complex lens. I think nothing, nothing at all is very simple. I think um, everyone has a valuable story. And probably like you, Ari, I, I like hearing about it because it tells me their journey and why they are who they are. And for me, I've had a lot of journeys. I've lived in a number of places um, I've worked and still work in a number of countries. Um, 
And I think I like to be considerate. I am a people pleaser. I was raised to be a people pleaser. And it's something that's very hard to to get out of um, and is often at odds with um, the kind of work that I do. So I'm sure I'll think of more bits and pieces to that. <laughs> that um, no worries. You know, who are you question? Right. Because it is relative in many it's, ways. It's always the worst question. People people yeah. hate that question. It's it's if you know if you've known somebody for a while, you just assume that they know about you, so you don't have to have a, a yep. small, you know, uh, description ready and an anecdote in there to throw in, and and you know things like that. So, but I, I kind of wanna... don't know your audience one hundred percent as well. So when I do true. ask that question, uh, my my students all answer literally with the same thing. It's it's an activity that I do. You know, I'm hardworking, I'm smart, and this and that. Everybody says exactly the same thing. So right. it, it's relative and contextual. If, if you don't mind, I want to go back a little bit into your question, into your answer there. And, you know, you, you said you get mis- you don't look like a typical professor. What, what does that mean? I mean, I mean, I, are, are we thinking the whole back to the future thing with the crazy hair and the old white guy in, in the lab coat? I mean, is that what, what, what is a typical, like how, what does a professor look like? Right. I think that that is the question. Um, something that I very much believe in as well, or I believe in, talk about, discuss, analyze the idea of perception. Uh, so as you know, Ari, I, I just completed um, a TED Talk, and I get to a lot of those little bits and pieces about how people perceive me. Our reality really is, you know, I can think whatever of myself, but people are going to treat me, treat you, treat everybody in the way that they perceive you. Google professor. All right. And if you Google professor and look at the images, it's still overwhelmingly older white males. Um, You'll get a few older males of different skin tones, probably black, maybe Asian, Um, the odd woman in there. But um, no one really knows what I look like unless you know me. I am a teeny tiny um, little brown girl. Um, that curvy <laughs> has her hair dyed, has tattoos, and you know maybe now things are a little bit different in terms of who is a professor. Oddly enough, Google hasn't updated itself to reflect that. But in the grand scheme of things, especially when I started off doing a PhD and started off in my career, I definitely didn't look like a professor. And people to this day have no idea. And I've been also made in the past to to feel bad if I say, well, no, I am. I am a doctor. I am a professor. Almost like I shouldn't say it because it's, you know, it's boasting. But the problem is, is that I people will not afford me. Uh, you know, those skills, the knowledge, the expertise, or whatever else comes with it. I'm just the little brown girl. Do you feel like, do you feel like that's because you're sort of in a male, I mean, call it what it is, let's call it what it is. You're sort of in a male dominated field. Um, Absolutely. Kind of, you know, sort of like I'm, I'm in IT. Uh, normally when I'm not doing crazy things like this, I mean, I do computer stuff and for the most part, it is a sausage fest. Um, you do have the odd. What do you uh, do when f- I do I, I, I've been I've done everything from pick up phone calls to run cables to design networks. So I'm kind of all over the place. But um, it's it, it's not that often you will see uh, a female, and it's yeah. really rare to see a white female in IT. Uh, which which I it's kind of interesting because it's. 
you know, it's, you know, you, if you look at like, if you, if you picture in your mind, like an IT support desk, it's, it's probably, I mean, let's, let's call it what it is. It's, there's probably a brown guy. There's probably an Asian guy. Uh, there's maybe a white guy, but right. you know, it's, it's always folks of some sort of ethnicity. That's not, that's not white, which is interesting. So, you know, every so often when you, when I work at a contractor, I do something and I go in and I see, you know, Hey, this is our, you know, chief engineer or chief architect. And, and, you know, and it's, it's white lady. It's like, Oh, cool. Surprise. Not, not that they can't do it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not pulling that whole, you know, women can't do things, blah, 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 blah. But it's just, it yeah, I know it's it just not happen. that common. So it's interesting that way. Let me, let me ask though, senior technology positions, who tends to hold them? Old white guys, weirdly enough. Um, yeah. But so, what's funny about that is they're the ones it's, it's for those types of roles. It's more, it's like 70% management, 30% sort of hands-on tech stuff. Um, they're not there for the most part to, you know, right click on the mouse and, you know, dig into the code or dig into the things, but you know, I mean, they'll, they'll have knowledge of stuff. I mean, for sure. But most of the part, it's it's sort of handling the resources and it's handling staff members and handling budgets and, and dealing with sort of the macro, more macro level of things. So, so think, yeah. think a little bit about why that might be. And a lot of it has to do with perception. If you are, yes, you're in a field that's dominated a lot by Asian males particularly yeah. South Asian males. Yeah. I think yeah. that was kind of a pigeonhole, you know, it's just, there's an expectation, but you're not seen as management material. You're the guys in the weeds. Um, and that's uh, changing though. I I'm seeing yeah. that. I mean, at least in, in, from my personal experience, I think that's changing. And I, I think literally that's just because of the generational shift. Um, you know, those, those old guys, they, for, for lack of a better term, they're dying off. I mean, they, they get old. It's just, that's, you know, the human cycle. So, you know, they, I, they don't have much of a choice. They have to pass the baton on. And, you know, the senior tech that's there eventually becomes the team lead, eventually becomes the manager, eventually becomes the director, eventually becomes the vice president, hopefully, knock on wood. Um, I've seen, a, I haven't seen a lot of brown vice presidents in my time. I do a lot of sort of C-level, um, I've done a lot of sort of C-level support in directorship level support and, and that kind of thing. And I see a lot of Brown directors, but I don't see a lot of Brown, you know, VPs and, and, and they're up. So that's kind of an interesting thought as well. Yeah. So, you know, my feel is a little different or it's, it's got some of the same issues. I see it changing, but it's playing a very long game of catch up. Um, and I think it is generational. Um, I think as people, more uh, a wider population of people start the training get into the educational fields and then you know we can get into all sorts of discussions about mentorship and cronyism and and so on a lot of those things have to change it often has very little to do with knowledge skills and abilities and has everything to do with perception with relationships um, yeah, the whole nepotism thing i mean i yeah yeah and and just we you know there's all sorts of theories about attraction and assimilation you know we like people who are like ourselves and if you're director you know vp of technology or whatever you know see someone that they would like to mentor chances are they're very similar to each other demographically so it's less of a skill issue and more of a similarity issue 
Um, and, and so there's whole, you know, research also as well on mentorship and formal versus informal and how that can be a mechanism for, of course, equity and inclusion. With my field, it's a little, it, it, there's a lot of similarity and it's, there's a lot of differences. I'm seeing a lot of change, tons of change. It could just be the, the things that I look at, though. But there's so many more diverse people entering um, academia. Um, it was, you know, as a person of color, a woman of color, I've got sort of a double jeopardy. And, you know, is it because I'm female? Is it because I have a different skin color? Is it a combination of the two? It's called intersectionality, right? It could be two, um, right. both, both aspects. Um, you know, no one's ever mean to me. No one's ever nasty to me. Well, not overtly anyway. It's just, they just don't see me as XXX. That, that's just it. And I have to figure out why or which, even in doing my PhD, you know, for women actually completing their PhDs, it's a struggle. It's very well known that women have high attrition rates because, you know, the, their supervisors are males. A lot of those males from the older generation had women um, of spouses who took care of the home, took care of everything so they could work. We saw all of that come back in the pandemic. A lot of men were able to further their career with publishing and a lot of women were not. Because when it came to childcare, managing homeschooling or online schooling, the women were not able to, um, even if they were successful professionals. So female academics suffered. I'm not particularly in that position, but um, there's still perceptions and there's still so much gender issues. And academia is a male-oriented field by its design of tenure, promotion, output, um, you know, you are rated on your output in terms of publications, but you're also rated on service your, um, to your school, to your profession, and you're rated on teaching. And teaching is a funny one because there's so much emphasis placed on student evaluations, but student evaluations have been shown time and time again to be invalid. They're popularity contests. They don't actually show anything of value. Right. And there is a clear skew against women. Uh, students will, you know, complain about clothing or that I expected you to be nicer to me. Why? Why? You know, so it's so complex and still this this entire field is, you know, moves in this direction. If you're a woman and then you're a woman of color, you are fighting two, three times as hard. Um, you know, I've had that for me where I was a co-author on a paper with somebody who was of the majority group. And that person was told that your publication is, is very strong. And when it came up to me, you know, I was told your publication is good, but you could do better. And it was the same publication. Um, wow. Author, you know, co-author females <clears throat> on publications, they will ask, what did you actually do? They And they, you know, whereas males on co-authored publications, even if they're listed second or third, they will be assumed to have done most of the work. So perception, perception is reality. Perception is how, you know, how we make so many of our decisions and the implicit bias that goes along with it. And, and that's, you know, maybe to a lot of people, it sounds like buzzwords, but when you live it and breathe it every day, it is your reality. It becomes your reality. And you learn to try and tackle and block these things as best as you can. Um, you know, and that's why I believe in trying to be authentic in the workplace. But, you know, how far will that go if people are still looking at you through the particular lenses? Wow. Wow. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, okay. Let's, let's jump to another question here. Um, 
looking at your past and and looking at your future at the same time, what would you say would be the best phase in your life? And and I guess by attrition, the worst phase. Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah. Because I think we tend to afford the best phase with success, you know, and, and check boxes and, and the worst phase, you know. Um, but sometimes they can be one and the same. And I, I've never really thought about best and worst per se, because I think they're so... Well, you're too busy living. I mean, we we're in the we're in the mix. I mean, and, yeah. you know, we're, and we're all just trying to we're all just trying to get by. So to yeah. sort of get out of the pot and stand back and look at the pot and sort of see where you've come and see where you're going, kind of thing. That's that does take uh, some reflection. But yeah, it, it I does. am putting you on the spot here. So <laughs> this is five to seven. With your host, and I might give so. <laughs> you a very complex answer to this. So, you know, I'll very briefly tell you. You know, growing up, I was not fabulous. Um, it was all right. You know, I'm I'm very fortunate to be. Uh, I was born and raised in Canada, um, and you know, I, I'm very fortunate to have that environment and that support system. But my parents were not exactly the best of parents, so um, I don't actually have a lot of fond memories of being a, a kid. I really don't. And one of the hardest things for me, maybe a low point, was when my parents kicked me out. My mother kicked me out. Um, and how what? how old were you at this point? Twenty one. Twenty one. Um, okay, so, so you'd finished high school. Twenty, maybe twenty. Okay. Okay. Um, I wasn't exactly a kid, but my parents had raised me so sheltered that I still felt like a child. Like that was a, it was a very deliberate tactic for them to make sure I didn't know how to do anything. Um, and every time I try to do something, they'd pull me back and say no. So, but I was dating somebody and dating somebody out of my race. And, you know, I was still the straight A student and I came home and I would take care of my siblings, uh, you know, more than my own father would. He would barely go near them. And my mother had a bunch of kids really, really later on as well. So they were all little babies and I'd come back and I'd take care of them and so on and so forth. And I was, I was actually... Um, attending university at the time, and I had met this this person, um, and we started to date actually very strongly. Um, and I missed my curfew by like three minutes, and my mother kicked me out, literally kicked me out, held the door, would not let me back in the house. Um, at some point, I did go back in get my stuff. We I moved out, so that was a really low point for me. But then it became a high point, and that's the thing. Um, I, I know you're talking about phases. But that started a new chapter for me of actually being on my own. Now, I was with somebody, but to be honest, I, I had to fend for myself most of the time. I had to figure stuff out um, so much. So I grew up so fast in that period of time. I, I figured out how to, you know, jumpstart the fan on my car when I used to drive it because I had the most broken down piece of junk. Um, <laughs> I was driving everywhere, figured out how to cook, clean, live on my own, um, and still got straight A's and still got in a master's degree and still got a PhD. I didn't skip a beat. I really didn't wow. skip a beat. So it's, I go from this it, really big low. Of, you know, I don't have yeah. parents. Like they don't. I, it's a very interesting feeling. Let's just say if you know that there's literally nobody in your corner, there's no safety net. It's it, to that level of alone, being alone is very difficult. Most people don't understand that. Even if you don't get along with your parents, you know that they would take you back in. Mine would not. Right, so then, right. It's yeah. bizarre because you know you, you telling me that it's 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 strange that um, 
they, I mean, first of all, I, I, I have an eight year old and I can't, or nine year old, pardon me. And I can't even imagine, um, not giving him the tools to face the world. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's bizarre to me. It's, it's, it's weird that a parent would not give their child the ammunition and the tools needed to face the world mm-hmm. and then just kick them out. And like, what, what kind of lesson was your mom teaching you at that point? Like, uh, was she expecting you to fall flat and then come begging back? Yeah. And, yeah. I, I, I mean, called her bluff. Right. It right. So it was, it was almost like a power play really sort of like, Absolutely. Oh, she'll come, she'll come back to me and I can blah, 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 blah. It's, My mother and father used to pay good cop, bad cop and alternate so that it was a power play and you couldn't quite figure out who was your ally at any moment in time which was messed up uh, to begin with. Um, but yeah, it, and like I said, you know, I didn't, I, not like I do it now, but I didn't drink. I don't go out. I don't do drugs. I didn't, I was like, you couldn't get more model than me. And in all of this craziness, I was still knocking out school like there was no tomorrow. I was working a you know, part-time job or a summer job. I was, everybody was still being taken care of. And that's what my parents raised me to be a people pleaser. I have to take care of everybody else and not myself. They would take my money when I worked. Uh, you know, they, there's all sorts of very disturbing stories I have, which we won't get into, but a parent at the end of the day should be your safe space. And should I've be. never had a, a place of security and safety. And wow, so that that's... drives me. Maybe that's part of my who I am story that drives a lot for me. That's some, that's, that's trauma. That's straight up trauma. Absolutely. That's, that's that's abuse and trauma, and I'm. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. If that's a. Uh, I'm sorry. You know, that's it, that's it, been it a part of your life. But it's too bad because you shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to go through that. That's the thing. I mean, yeah, maybe I'm a stronger person for it, but I think I'd rather not be. Well, there's a saying. <laughs> they say that you know pressure creates diamonds, but what they don't realize is that it also creates rubble. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it was a. That's a low point that kind of became a high point at some point. I, you know, I found you know what I could really do a lot. I can do more than I thought I could, um, and so that's why it kind of became a phase of discovery of myself. I think because I was never allowed to to even think about myself as a child. If I ever did, it was shut down. You know, you right. were put down even if you thought you did something good or you thought something proud. My parents were always there to put me down. And so you just really just hang your head all the time. And I realized that, you know what, not just the book smarts, but I, 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 that street smarts. Yeah. I would just get in the car, drive somewhere. This was back before we had cell phones and so on. And I figured it out, hopped across the border, figured it out, jumped on a plane, figured it out. What else was I going to do? Right. Right. You know, and then having to learn about master's degrees and PhDs as a first generation student, I know you can probably identify with this area. It's a lot of social and cultural capital that even though I grew up in Canada, because of my parents not knowing right. um, and then not allowing me to explore, not helping me, it was almost like I was an immigrant myself. And so it's, having to learn that social and cultural capital is a lot. It really is a lot. Um, I'm sure I didn't learn it as well as other folks. So everything took me a little bit longer or a little bit, it's a little bit harder as well. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I couldn't. It's interesting because, you know, you say that I'm, I kind of look back at my situation. My parents, um, 
my parents were both educated, actually. Um, okay. You know, they had gone to school. Uh, you know, they were Im- immigrants from Pakistan mm. by, by way of uh, uh, London, England. So, you know, okay. they, they, they left Pakistan in like 58, 1958. And then my mom moved to London, England and very much like you couldn't speak the language that much couldn't do and she just went out and figured it out and by the time 19 and two years later she was in a she was working and she owned a house she bought a house in in like like near piccadilly circus or something like that now like like right down there yeah in 1950 yeah and she she somehow she wait like she told me she was like i she got up at four o'clock in the morning she heard that they were giving mortgages and she got a mortgage for like $11,000 $11,000 or something like that. Uh-huh. And she had to wait at five o'clock in the morning and she was waiting outside and she went and she applied and did the whole thing and she got it and she bought the house. Like, like it was just, it was, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. It was like a three yeah. bedroom house at a basement and, and, and it was amazing. And, you know, my dad who, you know, they weren't married at the time and my dad followed my mom to England. And, you know, so they sort of, and I'm using your quotes here, dated and hung out for, the entire 60s they they basically from 1959 all the way to 1969 1970 is when they moved to canada so they spent the 60s in london england oh, wow. i That's know amazing. i know my dad can you imagine i can't imagine <laughs> like they were there for the birth of 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 the Beatles and they were there. For, my, my uncle's in one of the Beatles videos yeah. in Hey Jude, like when he's playing the piano, he's my uncle's one of the ones kind of hanging out on like, there's a pole in the background of my uncle's up there and he's, you know, na 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 na. Hey Jude, you know, that whole wow. thing. Yeah. And my dad remembers, you know, seeing this guy who played the guitar really, really well. And then he set his guitar on fire and I'm like, you saw Jimi Hendrix light yeah. his guitar on fire. I'm, I'm just like, and I was like, yeah, and it's it's funny because when I asked them about it, they're like, I really don't remember. I'm like, oh my god, you experienced it well then, because let's be honest, they were they were probably you know yeah, yeah, <laughs> either yeah. intoxicated or something, you know. <laughs> so, sixties in London, England, yeah. Um, well, and so let yeah. me kind of. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Don't knock yourself out yet. Well, so let me sort of tell you a little bit more about myself because or at least tell whoever's listening about myself because you know but I didn't have the same so my parents my mother maybe had a grade seven education um my father had some education but he was always a little elusive about it so he might have had community college I'm not even sure I don't I I don't know (laughs) but he was never quite straight up about things let's put it that way uh and he, you know, so I didn't really have educated parents. And that, you know, again, studies show, like, who's going to attend colleges? Who's going to attend Harvard? It's the people who come from parents who have education. It's It just self-perpetuates. Um, my parents did not have those things. So my mother, you know, has, she cooked and cleaned, and that was her life. She never went out to get a job. In Canada, and maybe she had her reasons for that. My father made good, you know, good money at the time for a a household of four, but it was still very poor. We were still very poor. Uh, you know, I just remember only being allowed to have one pair of shoes, you know, or any, you know, those kinds of things. So, but I did not have that either. So, they just did not have, you know, they worked hard. Whatever they did, they worked hard. And the fact that they they came from Guyana, and Guyana is a poor country. It's one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. 
um, and had gone through a lot of political turmoil. They lived through times where you had to, you know, wait for food and, you know, for meat and so on. So um, I just, I never had educated parents per se either. And that was, it meant that I, I had to start from scratch completely. I didn't even have models to follow. Um, aside from maybe my friend's parents or something, but I didn't really know them well either. So you kind of feel like you're really just, you're just digging out, just digging out of, of, you know, below ground, below zero. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, Hey, here I am world. And Oh, great. I'm already at a deficit, you know? Yeah, uh... <laughs> exactly. But Ooh. you know, the American dream was my thing. I was told I could have it. <laughs> I was told I could have it, so I went well, for it. In all fairness, with, with, you know, you, facing the slaps along the way. But, you know. Yeah, but in all fairness, you are sort of living the American oh, I dream. Am, I mean, I scrapped for it, fought and kicked and scrapped. Let me tell you. Right. Well, that's right? then. I, I guess it works in some ways. Yeah, it does. It, it, you know, again, it's timing, it's opportunity, it's a lot of things. Um, but I kicked and and scrapped for it. I really did. So. Fair enough. Yeah. Let's go to another question here. Um, so do you have a, if you were to take, look at yourself. Okay. Here's Wahida. And if Wahida was a corporation, what would your, what would your, your sort of company statement be? What would be your, your, your philosophy? Are we calling corporations people? Have we gone down that path? I'm just kidding. Are they? Are they not? <laughs> That's a whole other discussion, isn't it? Oh uh, yeah. Um, what was so you kind of like? What's my my value? What's your philosophy? My corporate what's, values. Uh, not so much corporate. I just I just used corporate as a as a as an example. But I mean, what's your what's your philosophy in corporate life? Ethos? Like, do you have a general philosophy? Kind of, you know, now I, I live by these thing. rules. Yeah. Um. I think, first of all, whatever you do, do good. You know, do, you know, somebody is in my, in my realm. I want to do good for them. I, I will give them whatever I've got. I, if I know you like something, I'll go find it. Uh, I, I just want to put a smile on somebody's face. That, that's, you know, kind of, it's very basic. Um, but if there's somebody who I think is, is kind and, 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 um, you know, towards me, I, I will be the one giving you shirt off my back. I, whatever I can do for you, I will. Um, so I think that's one aspect for me um, in terms of values um, is do good when you can, if you can. Um, help others if you can. So if you know somebody else is, you know, uh, in a position where they might need your help and you ha you are available and have it to give it to them. Do that. Um, I try not to judge and I don't, I think everybody says that we all judge. We all do. Absolutely. Um, but I also realize that so many people's lives and so many people's um, experiences are different. And again, if, if you don't judge, I don't judge. Um, I will, you know, try to look at your situation from your perspective as best as I can. Um, so maybe I don't know if those are values. Um, you know, I, I, I want everyone to have equal access, equal opportunity. And I think that's the big thing, equal opportunity. 
And a lot of the reasons that I have, I, I like these things is because I've never really had it. I just haven't had it. So I want to see others have it as well. I don't like to kick down. I don't like to shut the door behind me. Um, and I want people to thrive. Um, and I want to help them thrive. Um, I think that's it. I don't know if there's any kind of other ones or offshoots from that, because I think that's fairly fundamental. No, but that's, that's so great. It's it's whatever you want it to be. It's yours. It's about right. you. So. <laughs> and I'm just trying to think. And I'm trying not to. I'm trying to just keep it to you know what is what guides my daily life. And um, I believe in. There's a Swedish term called lagom, and okay. it's kind of just enough. I'm not sure if I've exercised this as well as I would like to, but this idea of just doing and just having just enough. Uh, I think that sometimes we want to have as much money as we can or as much of this and as much of that. But I like the idea of doing what you need to do to have what makes you happy. Um, right. Right. And spreading the wealth, maybe a little, <laughs> Right, a little, <laughs> I still want some. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. We all do, my dear. And we all yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, you know, everyone's got a different perspective on that. Maybe some people say I have too much. Sometimes I feel like I don't have enough. Um, it, it's again, it's a point in time. Sometimes it's very cross-sectional the way that I look at these things. Um, I also like to always move forward. Um, sometimes there are plenty of times in my life I've had to take two steps back. Um, but again, not having that safety net and kind of being a scrapper, um, whatever I do, I want to make sure that I can still maintain my position or move forward and help other people in the mix. Like they're, they're part of that as well. It's not just me, but I'm pulling people with me for that. That's a long answer. That is a long answer, but it's, it's a great answer. That's uh, that's, that's great. <laughs> um, okay. Let's, uh, let's move on again here. Which is interesting for somebody who's yep. super introverted and you know that area. I don't have a lot of friends, but the ones that I do, I always want to help them and reach out to them the best that I can. Well, I mean, it just kind of seems like you're more of a quality versus quantity person. Absolutely. And yeah. 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 And and it's 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 ironic because I think like I see a lot of people out there and who say, Oh, I want quality versus quantity, but then they have, you know, six hundred friends on Facebook. Or they have you know, and, and to me it's kind of like mm, are you sure? Or you just or you just want everybody to love you kind of thing. Cause, yeah. But well uh, and in, in the same note, I also, yeah, sorry. I'm just in the same note, I've also noticed that I th think that's also partly an age and maturity thing. Because mm -hmm. I know now at this age and as old as I am and where I've been and what I've seen, I, I don't care if I have 600 people, you know, I know tons of people everywhere all over the place. And, you know, I walk into some place and, hey, how are you? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I don't care about that. I, I, I have three or four friends and, and you know, they're great folks and that's all I need kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And sort of the corollary to that to me is, um, I, I agree with you. There's people, maybe not so much the, the Facebook friends and all of that, you know, those are superficial measures. And, you know, I have a lot of people who I'm friends with cause we have birds and I don't know them from Adam, <laughs> but you know, me and my crazy parents, but, and I, so I never look at those measures per se, but, I, I've seen way too many people who are looking for attention so bad. You know, you know me. I, I am pretty 
straight up there for a lot of things. And if you don't like me because of my value or my perspective, you know, I am a people pleaser, but I've also gotten old and kind of tired of bullshitting, you know, and tired of people's bullshit. So that probably does come with age of maturity. But time and time again, I've seen people that just keep craving other people's attention. But you get home, right? And they are not, um, they're not as concerned about their personal relationships. Like they'll literally ditch their very strong personal relationships to go get attention from other people. And I could just never understand that, especially work. And I know that work is something that's very, very important. Heck, I, I work a lot. My, my area of study involves organizations. But at the end of the day, right, when you get sick um, and so on, who's going to care for you? You think anybody at your workplace is going to care at all? No. So yeah, it's, it's a bit of a catch twenty two. Ego, they're mm. so worried about their their support or you know maybe subordinates, their peers, and and they're trying to get all this attention from people at work. But they you you leave that job, you get sick, they will not look back twice. And I've seen it so many times. And it's the person that's you're living with, your family, your close friends, who are the ones that are going to step up and help you. So nurture the right relationships. That's a great philosophy right there. I mean, you could just say that. Nurture the right yeah. relationships. Yeah. That's good. I like that. <laughs> okay. Um, so I guess this would be my final question uh, to you. And this one is going to take a little bit of um, explaining, I think. But uh, I want you to ask yourself, uh, as in as in Wahida asking yourself, Am I hunting antelope or field mice? And the concept of that is, is that, um, so picture yourself as a lion or some sort of alpha predator. <clears throat> I'll use a lion in this case, but, um, so a lion is fully capable of capturing, killing, uh, eating field mice. Um, but it turns out that the energy required to do so uh, exceeds the caloric content of the mouse itself. Uh, mm. That being said, a lion can, you can spend your day hunting and eating field mice and you would still slowly starve to death. So you can't, and you know, a lion can't really live on field mice, although much easier to catch. Uh, a lion needs an antelope. Uh, antelopes are big. They take more speed, more strength, more effort. Uh, but once killed, they provide a feast for the lion, uh, you know, and her pride. And quite frankly, you can live on a long and happy diet of antelope. But here, the but but the distinction here is important because are you spending all your time and exhausting all your energy catching field mice? In the short term, it might give you a nice, rewarding feeling, but in the long run, you're going to die. So, at the yeah. end of the day, do you? Do you chase field mice or, or field mice or do you hunt antelope? That's a, a very interesting question. <laughs> and <laughs> I do wonder again, is are they mutually exclusive? Must you only there you choose go. one or the other? No, um, no. D answer it, take it, dissect it, whatever you want with it. So, you know, the, the stories of people, you know, back in the day, um, trying to survive, it was very typical that the men would go off and hunt the big prey, right? 
and the women would be how the hunter gatherers or the gatherers, I'm sorry, and collect all the berries and so on. And, 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 you know, not have to go out for days at a time trying to get these big kills. Society couldn't live without the women because most of the time the men weren't able to bring back those big kills. And I think there's a value to both. And I think that we have to figure out which is which we do. So when it, you know, it came to my, let's say my career, my, and so on, I think that's the antelope. You know, a PhD takes forever. Um, you have to really put a ton of resources and a ton of effort. And in my case, you get a lot of blowback and a lot of issues and a lot of problems, but you got to see the prize. And the prize was getting that PhD. And I was strategic in that. Um, I knew that I wanted to, um, not, not that I dislike Canada, I just wanted to travel. Um, I wanted to have something that I could port with me that was internationally recognized. I'm a human resources professional, a human resources um, scholar, and even if I got the certifications, which would be in some ways chasing field mice, it wouldn't have done me any good. As soon as I moved to the U.S., CHRP was not valid. It's valid in Canada. No one cares about it in the U.S. When I moved to England and I worked there, the CIPD designation, great for England, not for here. So chasing the field mice made no sense because as soon as I moved, um, you know, they were easier and shorter to get. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have carried over. So I chased the Ph.D. It's four years of undergrad, a couple years of MBA. Um, and seven years. I took a long time because I was tagging along with somebody else who had other ideas. So my antelope was that PhD. But once I got it, A, it's internationally recognized and B, no one can take it away from me. And it's an honorific and a title that I, you know, I, I value for so long. That took me, what, seven, four, you know, for like 15 years in total to get. Um, so I chase antelope when I think it makes sense, but in the meantime, I was chasing field mice as well. You know, the jobs that I got and, and so on, you know, um, I've had a, a lot of, um, other issues that came up while I was doing this things. One of the reasons why it took me a long time to do my PhD and, and land where I land in the U S. Um, uh, but you can't do one to the exclusion of the other. I, I think if you can, um, if you can chase the antelopes, you're probably very privileged because you've got a security and a safety net, right? You already have things in place that allow you to exclusively chase antelopes. Let's think about the Elon Musks of the world and, and so on, right? You already have somebody gathering your field mice for you. You can chase antelopes. When you don't have that, you have to find a way to do both. And sometimes you also have to realize that you can't fight for everything all the time. Sometimes you have to sit and take a pause, just a little bit of a pause and enjoy the field mice because they're there. And, and you know, just, just kind of spin your wheels a little bit to figure out what your next thing is going to be. Um, so I, I again, uh, like I said in the beginning, I never believe things are black and white. Um, and if, you, you know, I always want everyone to chase their antelopes, but don't forget the field mice because they're your sustenance. They're your daily, they're your everyday. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. What um, if I can jump in here? What's your next antelope? Because I mean, mm. you know, getting a getting a PhD. I mean, that's it's no small feat. You know, that's it's an amazing thing. Um, but what is the next antelope for you? You know, I've kind of thought about that. One of the things about academia is you get tenure, right? Um, that a lot of that's going away too. 
Um, but you know, I am tenured. I still need to get go to full promotion. So I still need to do some work in that regard. But I want to do something a little bit different. I don't know what that is. And I don't have the luxury again of blowing everything up and chasing an antelope to the exclusion of the field mice. Maybe my job now has become the field mice because I, I everything's kind of set in motion, although I am the person that I, I don't sit still. I, I keep taking on new projects all the time. They're just smaller projects because they're near and dear to my heart. Um, but I, you know, I keep thinking about ideas of consulting, um, uh, ideas of even opening another, uh, opening a business. You know, I'm looking at what am I going to do maybe when I retire? And, and that's not that far away anymore. Um, you know, so, but yeah, as you know, I've been a little bit ill on top of a lot of other things. Um, I just haven't had time to flesh a lot of this out. And now as well in my career, people keep asking me to do stuff. So that antelope, you know, has, has yielded a good handful of field mice um, that I wasn't intending to chase, but I am spending a little bit more time chasing them than I would maybe like, but they are in my my wheelhouse and, and I'm very passionate about those things. But that's kind of where I am, but I'm just trying to, I don't know, just think about what will be sort of a nice next big step, should there be one. Hmm. Good. I like that. Uh, I'm going to jump to the next question. And this is the last question. And this is actually a fairly easy question. I probably should have asked this first, but that's okay. Uh, if you're in a bad mood, do you prefer to be left alone or have someone cheer you up? Oh. I think I kind of like to be left alone, but not for too long. Because um, it's easy to go down a, a path by yourself. Now, I do need time to decompress. I need time to figure out why I'm in a bad mood. Sometimes I, I get angry. I do get frustrated. Um, and sometimes I don't know why. The feelings come before the thoughts. So if I am by myself, it gives me that time to add some sort of logic or framing around what I'm feeling. You put the rational into the irrational. But I wouldn't want, I don't like you to go that long because you can go down some terrible rabbit holes. <clears throat> you just can't. Um, I do appreciate when people reach out to see if I'm okay. doesn't happen a lot, but it, you know, but it's helpful. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, after I have my time to sort of figure things out, I do would rather be with people to kind of help me get out of it. Okay. So it's kind of like a sort of like a, a yes and no at the same time. It is. Of. It's sort of an initial yeah. reaction and then a longer term. Okay. Yeah. All right. You know what? I'm going to pull another one on you. <laughs> I am going to give you a cabin in the woods. Now, what would it take for you to go off the grid between two and four weeks with no phone and no email? What do you mean by what would it take? What would it take for you mentally? What would it take for you uh, work-wise? I mean, how about this? Would it be hard for you to go off the grid with no phone or email for two to four weeks? Okay. Yeah. Um, first, uh, in theory, oh gosh, I crave that and I love it. In theory. I was looking to... <laughs> Right, when I first right. moved back to the U.S. from England and moved over to the East Coast, I was looking for a patch of land that I could just build a house that I was far away from everybody, but I could still get in my car and drive for 15 minutes to get what I needed. Um, 
<clears throat> I fantasize about that cabin and being by myself. Now, off-grid, I think that's a tough one. Uh, I think things have changed. Um, and I don't know how possible it even is. So first of all, the kind of work that I do, it, you, you never shut down, ever. There's no walking away. They don't tell you this when you're taking a PhD. Once you start this and then you get into an academic position, there is no such thing as turning off. It just doesn't exist. Your brain is always thinking about something. Even when you're spending the two months in the summer not getting paid, your brain is still working. So that's a tough one. It really is because I don't know that I can disconnect from work. I might not actually do physical work, but my brain is still going. It's still going. Um, I think the idea of going off grid is a near impossibility. And if anyone says they can, I still debate it because this is our connection to the world now. In class, I show Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Are you familiar with that is? No, no. What is that? It's a needs theory. Um, it, it's been a little bit refuted, plus it's very culturally bound, but this is what you learn in terms of motivation. There's a number of theories out there. And Maslow's hierarchy of needs says that we have basic needs, and once we fulfill those basic needs, we move to a higher order of needs. I wish I could have a visual because it makes more sense. Your basic okay. needs, and I forget the, the labels, but is food and water, right? Okay. Your next, you know, and, well, and like so maybe imagine level you're standing on something. a desert island or you're off grid, you have nobody. That's what right. you'll be looking for. And then you go to shelter and security, and then you go to love and belonging. Then you go to self-esteem needs, then you go to self-actualization. Then it said that you need to fulfill one before you could fulfill a higher order. We know that that's actually not necessarily true, but that's the idea of it. Anyway, there's now kind of a funny picture that I have where underneath that very basic layer, I have battery and Wi-Fi. Uh, and it, it, it's meant as a chuckle, but if you've ever been out of power, I was stuck in Hurricane Sandy a number of years ago, no power for five days. Oh, boy. And it was awful. I started to cry after a couple of days because it was me and my animals and I had to keep them warm. It was chilly. It was like October. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I suspect it would have some kind of electricity or whatever, but, you know, re current refugees, a lot of Syrian refugees and so on who find themselves in camps are actually talking a lot about, you know, that Wi-Fi is a basic right. Um, food and water and shelter, yes, and people get mad at them by by being upset about not having connectivity, but especially for collectivistic societies, people want to know, where did my cousin go? Where did my husband go? We're not in right. the same camp. Right. You know, and we're seeing some of this come up with the Ukrainians right now as well, that people are still trying to have some sense of normalcy. They're taking classes, you know, or they're, you know, it, it provides, it is so basic at this point that I'm not sure that going off grid is a reality for anyone unless you're a hermit and you can forage for your own food and so on. So I would have a very difficult time going off grid. I would love to be able to say I could put my phone away. It would probably be healthy for me to, to shut off a lot of these things. I read a book. I've never finished an entire book during Hurricane Sandy. I had nothing else to do. <laughs> um, and awesome. right now it's like if I want to read a book oh, I've got I've bought so many but I have 82 other things I need to do I need to respond to this and respond to that and so I don't know that I could live off grid because I think fundamentally it has become a basic human need and a basic human right I could reduce it but I don't know that I could I could get off it wow so that's kind of my story with a preface but yeah yeah. I, I kind of look at that. I look at that situation and I 
categorize it under reality and fantasy. Just mm. just like you said a little earlier. I mean, the fantasy of it is, is I would love to just close the door in the world sometimes and just be in my own little paradise and, and whatnot. But I mean, and then I see the reality of it. Well, okay, hold on. And that would mean I need to get out of the city. That means I need to have a certain amount of land. That means I need to, you know, set up the infrastructure so that I can have an indoor paradise where I'm not worried about the outside world. I mean, and that yeah. all unfortunately takes money that I don't have right now, which means now I have to work more, which means I have to deal with people more. So now I'm not in my happy place. <laughs> right, right. So, and there is, again, a sense of privilege with that for a lot of people. I'm sure there's a handful of people who could rough it, tough it. But I think most people, most people in this industrialized, you know, nations that we're in, you'd have to have a lot in place before you could do it. Yeah, that's true. Well, Hita, thank you for for uh, for coming out and playing the game. Well, thank you for inviting me. If uh, if you know, what are you doing? Where can you be had, and where could you be found? And and like throw your socials out there if you want. Or okay, um, I'm definitely on LinkedIn, um, and I'm on Instagram, and I'm on Twitter. Although I don't use it very much, I'm not the biggest fan of Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I am on Facebook, but. That profile sometimes hard to find. Um, no, I really appreciate this. And Erin, you and I, as I know you've had with, with many of your guests, you know, have lots of conversations like this. So, yeah. um, you know, it's just, it was very nice to be able to to chat with you. And, and, and you know, uh, some of these questions I haven't been asked, even though I think the answers are not surprising because of the interactions we've had. But I just haven't been asked. And it's kind of nice in a reflexive way. Um, I think I am one of your first or only women. Uh, the only one so far. Yeah. yeah so, uh, so, you, have you know, to put I a think little... there's a lot of value that, you know, women bring or different perspectives that women bring. Oh, definitely. Um, people definitely. of color, people yeah. with intersectionality, you know, um, identities that just, and people have, of course, lived different experiences. So thank you. That is true. Thank you, Wahida. I uh, appreciate it. And um, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Well, thanks, thanks, guys. Up. And uh, thanks for listening. Bye.